Hi there. Good evening. I just lost a chicken, so I'm to, to these damn puppies. Anybody need a puppy? I'm trying to get rid of some puppies. Poor puppies. Um, somebody liked my comment. Thank you, Eric Swalwell, for your service. And my touch has anything new one hour ago kevin mccarthy doubled down on gop support of indicted chinese spy you fucking pig bunch of fucking pigs in congress swelling the drain it is a total disaster i'm reading from Midas touch on youtube is a total disaster for the failing governor whose state continues to crumble with fleeing insurance companies teacher and doctor shortages Ren Hike's book bans abortion bans, attacks on the LGBTQ community and anti business environment, clampdowns on phrase why why the fuck can't can't uh you get rid of this fucker? Ron DeSantis, he's he, like abducted and trafficked with the Texas governor, Abbott, all these asylum seekers and dumped them in the middle of the night front of the VP's residence in, in midwinter in Washington, D.C. Okay, let's see here. Ron DeSantis' campaign fired roughly a dozen staffers and is expected to fire more in the coming weeks as his poll numbers plummet and he burns through cash. The campaign is shaking up its big dollar fundraising operation because top donors are becoming disinterested. Good. and demands that DeSantis and Abbott are charged with human trafficking and removed from office immediately. years I wonder if somebody could be worse than Trump and today I wonder no more everything Trump touches endorses endorses, turns to crap love it time for Ron to do what we all wish Trump senior would have done and pull out Florida just ranked number 10 of the worst states to live and work not surprisingly all 10 are red states with Texas being one why it why are these um
to uh, healthcare. Mm -hmm. Okay, said everybody's, uh, why are these Republican governors allowed to persecute minority groups and bills in the, sign bills in the middle of the night taking away women's right to health care? Americans need to stand up and say no to fascism. And everybody supports Baxar County Sheriff's Department as they consider charging DeSantis and Abbott for human trafficking those asylum seekers, remember? Everybody make some calls. Fucking free calls. To the Justice Department and demand DeSantis and Abbott removed from office immediately for unconstitutional, therefore criminal conduct. I'm going to take a um, screenshot and tweet it. Okay. Um, cease and desist threat. GOP declares war businesses. What? GOP. Ad That's cool. GOP attorneys general threaten America's top corporations in a new letter. Right, so we're back. Bummed. Lost my pretty rooster. Pike. Hmm. See what Lincoln Project is doing. Check that out recently. Unhinged reaction. I'm back on Midas Touch. Katie Porter brings the house down and exposes Republicans to their faces. Awesome. Six hours ago. Let's get started, Mr. Tanaglia. Mm -hmm. Enablers for 100. President who called how much we spend on defense crazy. But let defense spending grow by over one hundred billion in one term. I don't know the answer. <laughs> really? Don't know who called the defense budget crazy? Who is Donald Trump? There are certain <laughs> things that go together. PBJ, chips and guac, Arch and QAnon, Katie Porter, and a whiteboard. According to this chart, what is the biggest 
driver of inflation during the pandemic. The blue is the, the dark blue is the recent period. <laughs> it would be corporate profit. <laughs> and what is that percentage? It is 54%, and that number does stay that level of high if you update that number to more recent numbers as well. But today she took it up a notch. I give you Casey Porter, a white bull in jeopardy. Who are defense lobbyists? Mr. Mansfield. Waste for 200. I'm really counting on you here, Mr. Mansfield. Today, the California representative opted to bring out her trusty sidekick to demonstrate how each year lawmakers and defense lobbyists pour hundreds of billions into the Pentagon without scrutinizing every dollar. Of course, at the expense of taxpayers. I mean, I'm just surprised they played along, but it's worth watching every single second. Let's get started, Mr. Tanaglia. Enablers for 100. President who called how much we spend on defense crazy, but let defense spending grow by over 100 billion in one term. I don't know the answer. <laughs> really? You don't know who called the defense budget crazy? Who is Donald Trump? Mr. Mansfield. <laughs> Enablers for <laughs> A member of Senate leadership who recently said funding the Pentagon at $886 billion would mean defense is radically underfunded. <laughs> who is Mitch McConnell? Mr. Khan, they really, you can easily be the winner here. I take waste for uh, 300. Great choice. Waste for 300. <laughs> Ineffective DOD assets that cost about 600 million to build and are now being decommissioned before the end of their useful life. Spend on defense. Crazy. <laughs> but let defense spending grow by over 100 billion in one term. Really? You don't know who called the defense budget crazy? Who is Donald Trump? Mr. Mansfield. Enablers for 200. Enablers for 200. A member of Senate leadership who recently said funding the Pentagon at $886 billion would mean defense is radically underfunded. Who is Mitch McConnell? <laughs> Mr. Khan, they, really, you can easily be the winner here. I take waste for uh, 300. Great choice. Waste for 300. Ineffective DOD assets that cost about 600 million to build and are now being decommissioned before the end of their useful life. I'm going blank there. Sorry. <laughs> What are littoral combat ships? You're familiar with this program. Mr. Snaglia. Uh, enablers for 300. Pardon me? Enablers for 300. Enablers for 300. Individuals who get rich while pushing to overspend our tax dollars. I don't know. Who are defense lobbyists? Mr. Mansfield. 
Waste for 200. <laughs> I'm really counting on you here, Mr. Mansfield. A program that is 180 lobbyists. Mr. Mansfield. Waste for 200. I'm really counting on you here, Mr. Mansfield. A program that is $183 billion over budget and 10 years behind schedule. What is the Joint Strike Fighter program? What is the what? That's correct. What is the F-35 program? Correct. Mr. Khan. Missing guardrails for 200. Missing guardrails for 200. The institution that has authorized more defense spending than the president requested for the current fiscal year. Who has authorized more defense spending than the president requested for this current 2023 fiscal year? Um, I would say it's the um, Justice Committee. We'll give you that. Who is? Congress. Mr. Tanaglia, I'd really love to see you get one right here. I'm rooting for you. Missing guardrails for 100. Missing guardrails for 100. This one I think you're going to know. A review that every agency has passed except the DOD. Audit. What is an audit? What is an audit? Correct. Mr. Mansfield. Missing guardrails for 300. Missing guardrails for 300. This is a really good one. The percentage of DOD's assets that it cannot account for. 61 percent. 61 percent. So wow. Huh? What is 61 percent? What is 61%? So I read the question wrong. The percentage of DOD assets that it can account for is 39 percent. You're right. Cannot account for 61 percent. Can account for for 39. All right, Mr. Khan. Is that double jeopardy? Uh, yes. 100. <laughs> this is it. Waste for 100. DOD assets that have been lost, damaged, or destroyed to the tune of millions of dollars based on a May GAO report. What are spare aircraft parts? We're out of time for Jeopardy DOD, and the winner here today should be the American people. Because no matter who uncovers the most waste, the important thing is to provide long overdue oversight to the taxpayer. But here's the thing, despite the fun aspect of it, her point rings true, right? How often do you hear Republicans respond to any discussion about, say, universal health care, student loan forgiveness, with how exactly are we going to pay for that? But when it comes to military spending or anything akin to that, it's never asked. Nobody ever says, well, how are we going to pay for that? It's just no matter the amount of digits or numbers that are added to it as it goes up each year, it's never scrutinized. And just look how much money is wasted. Money that could be used to help the everyday American. According to this chart, what is the biggest driver of inflation during the pandemic? The blue is the, the dark blue is the recent period. It would be corporate profits. And what is that percentage? It is 54%, and that number does stay that level of high if you update that number of more recent numbers as well. Ow. So over Ow. half of Ow. increased prices people are paying are coming from increases in corporate profits. Yes, the unit price index is reflected in corporate profits as opposed to other costs. And how does that compare to historically to other periods of inflation or over other periods of economic time? 
as reflected there in another analysis, it is significantly higher in this recovery, 11.5%. And what is it today? Uh, 53%. So I want to make sure everyone in America understands this chart. What is a unit labor cost? The cost of wages and an associated right. work cost. So we could just wages. What is a non-labor input cost? Uh, a variety of things, including um, maintenance and, in, and investments. Okay, so I, I have to buy the buy the stuff to make the widget. I have to have a factory. I have to keep the lights on. I have to hire someone to make the widget. That's this stuff. And this is what I add on, on top. Hey, Midas Mighty. Love this report. And continue the conversation by following us on Instagram, at Midas Touch, to keep up with the most important news of the day. What are you waiting for? Follow us now. Hi, Hankar. Hi, Nikki. Are you ready for supper time, huh? Those nights when we are very lucky to be joined by former federal prosecutors Andrew Weissman and Glenn Kirshner because we need their experience and expertise to analyze what would normally be a routine filing in a criminal case, which Special Prosecutor Jack Smith used this afternoon to hit back hard against Donald Trump's criminal defense lawyers. The 10-page ruling followed by a signature page with Jack Smith's name at the top says that Donald Trump's request for an indefinite continuance for the trial date, quote, borders on frivolous. Jack Smith knocks down every argument the Trump lawyers make for an indefinite delay. On page two, Jack Smith says, quote, the defendants chide the government for seeking an expedited trial, but in doing so, they have it exactly backward. A speedy trial is a foundational requirement of the Constitution and the United States Code, not a government preference that must be justified. Jack Smith says that the Trump lawyers are wrong to claim that the case involves complex new legal issues. On page three, Jack Smith says, they should not be permitted to gesture at a baseless legal argument, call it novel, and then claim that the court will require an indefinite continuance in order to resolve it. One aspect of the request for more time by Trump lawyers that seemed to make sense to me at least in their filing was the Trump lawyer's description of the enormous amount of evidence that the prosecutors have given to the defense lawyers already as part of the discovery process. But Jack Smith points out the defendants have failed to include important information about the government's discovery productions. For example, the government's production included a set of key documents referenced in the indictment or otherwise determined by the government to be pertinent to the case. Jack Smith also points out that prosecutors have already given Trump lawyers material earlier than they have to. On page six, Jack Smith says the government has made these productions promptly following arraignment despite having no obligation to do so, including material that does not need to be turned over until, quote, 
the morning of the first day of trial. Jack Smith reveals that content obtained from two of defendant Walt Nauter's devices has not yet been turned over to the criminal defense team of defendants Trump and Nauta. Jack Smith points out that he is also asking for a continuance, but not an indefinite one. On page six, Jack Smith says, it also bears emphasis that the government has already sought a nearly four-month continuance of trial, in part because of the need for both sides to review and process discovery. Jack Smith says emphatically that the classified information procedures do not justify a continuance after Donald Trump's lawyers described them as particularly onerous and time-consuming. On page 7, Jack Smith says the government intends to transport these materials early next week to the sensitive, compartmented information facility, SCIF, maintained for cleared defense attorneys at the C. Clyde Atkins Courthouse in Miami. To the Trump lawyers claim that it would be just impossible to impanel a fair jury before the presidential election, Jack Smith says, our jury system relies on the court's authority to craft a thorough and effective jury selection process and on prospective jurors' ability and willingness to decide cases based on the evidence presented to them. The conditions that defendants argue will make it a challenge to select a jury will not appreciably change after the completion of the election. The last line of Jack Smith's filing says, for all of these reasons, the court should reject defendants' invitation to defer consideration of a trial date and should set jury selection to begin on December 11th, yeah. 2023. Leading off our discussion tonight, Andrew Weissman, former FBI general counsel and former chief of the criminal division in the Eastern District of New York. He's a professor of practice at NYU Law School. Also with us, Glenn Kirshner, former federal prosecutor. Yay. He is the host of the Justice Glenn. Matters podcast. They are both MSNBC legal analysts. Uh, Andrew Weissman, uh, your reading of Jack Smith's uh, response on scheduling. Well, we anticipated that he was going to file a response uh, because so far he's really sort of run this crack team of making sure that his position is known to the court and the court has uh, the benefit of his thinking. Um, it, I thought was a very strong brief. Uh, you know, the, the borderline frivolous line is in reference to something that's important. Uh, the uh, former president keeps on talking about the Presidential Records Act and keeps saying that's what governs this case. And that is what the government took direct aim at and said it is entirely irrelevant to this criminal case, both to the uh, retention of classified national defense information part of the case and to the obstruction case. Um, and so I thought it was really good that they just took aim at that. What they basically said was frivolous, um, or it's, I think they were a little more polite and said borderline frivolous. Um, and then I think the other thing worth noting is it is really important for people to understand this is not a voluminous document case. You know what a voluminous document case is? Enron, where the words terabyte come up when you're dealing with huge amounts of electronic data. 
Um, it is true that this is not a sort of like a car crash. It's not something which is a very small case, but it just is not that complicated. Um, the biggest issue here is the classified documents, and I think it's good that the government conceded that will take some time, but their point is that this will be six months. There is ample time for people to go through that material because it's not that much. So there's a very strong brief. It'll be a real test of Judge Cannon as to what she does at this point, um, whether she really is going to be fair to the government uh, in their request for a firm trial date. Kirster, as I said uh, on this program, when I read the Trump lawyer's uh, request uh, for the continuance, it made sense to me when they were talking about the massive nature of the discovery here, but they left out an awful lot of specifics about that that the government has now supplied for us. And of course, I didn't think it made sense that they should have an indefinite continuance, but certainly an argument for a continuance was in there in the amount of material. The government, Jack Smith says, as, I, as we just said in this document, that we have, in effect, given you defense lawyers a study guide. Uh, we've pointed out to you what the highlights are in this massive amount of material. But from the Trump lawyer perspective, how can they trust or rely on or use effectively a study guide that's supposed to save them time supplied to them by the prosecutors? You know, Lawrence, you just made the exact point that will be made by the defense attorneys. You know, thank you very much, prosecution team, for helpfully pointing out, for example, what portions of the surveillance video you believe are relevant to the case. That doesn't mean we're going to agree with your assessment. But, Lawrence, I love your characterization of this 10-page filing. You said Jack Smith hit back hard. I would agree with Andrew. This is a persuasive court pleading. It is a model of clarity, of brevity, of persuasion. It is only 10 pages, double-spaced. It's a quick, easy read. I would urge people to read it because it is clear. Jack Smith and his team don't mince words. They don't pull punches. And I, I was really kind of excited when I read it because it feels like a sign of the prosecution to come, um, you know, and I think that that they are going to continue to insist on a timely trial date. And in fact, on page one of this pleading, they highlight how the the Trump defense team failed in really its most important endeavor when they filed their pleading on July 10th. They said, "Judge, don't set a trial date." One of the first things Jack Smith pointed out is the Speedy Trial Act says the judge shall set a day certain for the trial to begin. So they really just sort of embarrass the, the Trump defense team's request, and they don't let up for the 10 pages. So I, I am encouraged that this is what we can expect from Jack Smith and his team. Yeah, uh, Andrew Rice, but I, I agree with Glenn's characterization of it as exciting. Now, we may be... Uh, losing credibility with the audience here if we say that a legal filing like this is exciting to read. But it was for me because of what Glenn's talking about. You could feel the pace of it in the first two sentences. It, it just takes off like a rocket and, and, and just speeds right through there. And one of the things that that means is it does not take any detour into or notice of 
the political rhetoric used by the Trump lawyers in their filing that provoked this filing, particularly the sentence in their filing where the Trump lawyers say President Biden is prosecuting Donald Trump. They say that very specifically in their filing. Uh, and Jack Smith decided to simply ignore uh, all of that political posturing and just go straight at what this case is about. Yeah, I thought that was, frankly, the right call. Um, I agree with you in the point that you've made in, in a prior show that that statement had no basis in fact. Uh, there, there isn't even a basis, in fact, to, to say that this is a case brought by the attorney general, let alone uh, the current president of the United States. There, this is a reason there, there is an appointment of a special counsel uh, in this case. I think it was smart, particularly with this judge, to play it by the book uh, and to set up facts and clear law. And I agree completely with Glenn that it was really smart to start with the language of the Speedy Trial Act and to remind the judge that it is the public that has a right to a speedy trial. Um, that is really key here. It is not something that the government um, can just choose, and it's not something that the defendant can choose. The defense very often would never like to never go to trial, of course, and it's the public's right by statute to see that people charged with a criminal case are tried speedily, obviously consistent with the due process rights of the defendant to prepare a case. Um, but again, this is going to be a real test of Judge Cannon to see how she handles this matter. Uh, Glenn, what did you see, if anything, in terms of indications of the evidence in the case? Anything indicating uh, what, where we might be going in terms of evidence that we didn't know about before this filing. There's the reference to uh, two devices of Walt Nauta's that they have, uh, they're in possession of. They haven't turned over the information from that. There's just a couple of references like that to certain specific pieces of evidence. I don't think we learned anything new factually that we didn't know before this pleading dropped. Um, but what I do think we can glean from it is this prosecution team is extremely organized and they're very forward leaning you know Lawrence you pointed to the fact that they turned over something called Jenks material these are prior statements of witnesses that by the rules don't even have to be given over until essentially the first day of trial although in practice prosecutors will give Jenks material over significantly earlier um, Jack Smith represented that listen we're giving it all over in fact I think he said we have given over all of the grand jury transcripts. And I have to tell you, that must have been a shock when Donald Trump got to see who testified about him and what they said in the grand jury. Because I can envision them, you know, having an audience with Donald Trump at Mar-a-Lago saying it's a witch hunt, boss. You've done nothing wrong. But I'll bet many of those witnesses said said some very different things under oath before a grand jury. But overall, these prosecutors are organized. They are forward-leaning, you know, disclosing more than they have to disclose earlier than they have to disclose it. That always puts lawyers in a very good light when they're in court and disputes come up. They can say, listen, we have been more than forthcoming, more than the rules require. So that will put them in a very good litigation posture in the court.
Uh, and Edward Weissman, uh, the, the firm of Jack Smith has another huge case that they're running at exactly the same time when they're responding so quickly and so effectively uh, in this espionage case. And that is, of course, the in investigation of what Donald Trump was up to leading up to January 6th. Uh, we, we now have today a possible, a theoretical uh, prosecution memo written by a team of lawyers who did a similar prosecution memo uh, for the case Donald Trump is now a defendant in. The prosecution memo they wrote about that uh, turned out to be largely uh, the direction Jack Smith went. Uh, they released their uh, prosecution memo, and to be clear, this is not an official document. This is just lawyers with prosecutorial experience who know the kind of prosecution memos that are written in the Justice Department before the decision to prosecute. And they indicate uh, that they expect charges to be filed. They believe evidence exists that could get to a conviction of Donald Trump uh, on the on, on what he was doing leading up to January 6th. What, what was your take of their memo? Sure. So this is, as you noted, a sample of a uh, prosecution memo that uh, they anticipate would be the kind of document that would be prepared uh, for Jack Smith as to the law, the facts, uh, the defenses, uh, that and why the case should go forward or not. Uh, this is uh, something that was published on Just Security, which is uh, something on the board of. Uh, the people who wrote this are colleagues and friends of mine. It is an incredibly thorough job, and, um, very, very detailed. There are three charges that they outline in connection with the January 6th case. One is a set of charges related to false statement charges for the fake elector scheme, a series of fake documents that were submitted to federal authorities. The second set of charges have to do with obstruction of justice, that is obstruction of Congress and certifying the votes on January 6th. And the third is insurrection. Uh, a charge that, frankly, has not been brought since uh, the Civil War. Uh, but that is one of the charges that was referred by the January 6th committee. Uh, and they go through all of the facts and all of the law uh, supporting those three types of charges. I should say that's just three of the types of charges, and they make a point of saying that there are a series of other types of charges that could be brought, for instance, in connection with campaign finance, in connection with pressuring um, the former vice president, in connection with what they were planning to do with the Department of Justice. In other words, there are all sorts of other things that may be charged as well. And Glenn Christian, we, we all know that the uh the Georgia phone call, the famous Georgia phone call, is part of this investigation because uh, Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger testified to Jack Smith's uh, grand jury about this. But now we're learning that Michigan Secretary of State was also questioned by Jack Smith's investigators. She's going to join us, actually, in the next segment. And so this, this investigation is is a multi-state investigation that could involve an awful lot more uh, than just what we know Donald Trump did in Washington. You know, Lawrence, this is an embarrassment of prosecutorial riches because you've got not only the fake elector scheme, and I don't think there's anybody who believes that in the seven battleground states, all of these uh, electors just sort of 
coincidentally oh and simultaneously came up with this scheme. This has always had the feel of a top-down, Washington-driven Trump and company operation. But you have that, and let's not forget the baseless and nefarious lawsuits that were filed by uh, Rudy Giuliani, Sidney Powell, and others. You've got uh, the insurrection itself, and not only do you have Donald Trump inciting it on January 6th, when he saw what was going on and people begged and pleaded with him to call it off, he refused to. He allowed those people, the, the police officers, the members of Congress, the staff, to remain at risk. I mean, this really is an embarrassment of prosecutorial riches, and, you know, we could see one enormous conspiracy indictment, a 371 conspiracy indictment at the end of the day. Well, Kirshner, Andrew Weissman, thank you both very much for starting off our discussion tonight. Thank you. And coming up, one of the state election officials questioned by Jack Smith's investigation is Michigan Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson, who will join us next. Georgia's Republican Secretary of State, Brad Raffensperger, is not the only Secretary of State who has been questioned by Jack Smith's investigators. Michigan Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson, who will join us in a moment, has also been questioned by Jack Smith's investigators about what was happening in Michigan when Donald Trump was trying to overturn the presidential election there. One thing that was happening in Michigan at that time, in December of 2020, is that Trump supporters were threatening Michigan Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson. One night in December 2020, I was about to put my son to bed when dozens of individuals descended upon our home. Growing in numbers over the course of an hour, they stood outside my front door, waking my neighbors, shouting obscenities and graphic threats into bullhorns. To this day, these images and this memory of that evening still haunts me. This was not the first, nor was it the last time. Sometime or a group of people showed up at my home or threatened me, my staff, or many of the hundreds of local election officials in our state. Joining us now is Michigan Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson. Uh, Secretary Benson, let me first begin with what we just heard you say. Uh, what is the threat level against you now in Michigan? I mean, we're heading into a, what by all accounts will be a very contentious election cycle. And so while in this very moment, today, July 2023, things are quiet, we are bracing ourselves, all of us, not just me, but election officials across this state, for the harassment, the threats, the challenges to escalate as we get closer and closer to and throughout 2024. So we know full hand this has not gone away. Uh, in fact, my previous opponent for this office in 2022 now runs the state Republican Party. So we're ready. Uh, we've endured it before. We're ready to endure it again. Uh, and grateful for the peacefulness of this day, <laughs> this moment, but we know more to come is ahead and we're bracing for it. Secretary Benson, uh, when did uh, Jack Smith and his prosecutors reach out to you for what you could tell them? We've been in your, uh, we, we've been in your constant, uh, frequent communication with the Justice Department really since December 
2020 or, or shortly thereafter, I should say after the, uh, the first of the year, after January 6th, made it very clear uh, what in some cases we knew throughout those months, which is this is a concerted national strategic effort to undermine the results of a legitimate presidential election. It affected us in Michigan, but it also has drains in not just Georgia and Arizona, but Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and, uh, and other battleground states as well. So. We have been turning over every piece of evidence Undermine, the means overturn. shared in early overthrow. 2021 uh, through uh, my interview uh, and several others interviews with the prosecution team in March of this year. Uh, I have confidence the investigation is comprehensive uh, and looking at all potential angles in which illegality occurred and is also proceeding in a way that is very evidence-based and our job uh, is... Uh, state election officials is to turn over all the evidence we have of any wrongdoing with regards to the elections and allow justice to be done. Uh, you, you mentioned an interview. Does that mean you were not questioned in the grand jury? It was in an interview setting? Uh, yes, I met with them in Michigan and a number of other Michigan officials did as well. The former election director, Chris Thomas, who uh, advised the Detroit election clerk in 2020, the Antrim County clerk, several lawmakers, including a Republican lawmaker, Ed McBroom, who oversaw a, uh, an affirmation of our election results after the fact. So again, casting a wide net, talking to many people uh, and seeking facts and evidence uh, of any type of wrongdoing. That's been the pattern throughout these last few years. And what did you tell uh, Jack Smith's investigators? I can't, you know, as I've said, I don't want to compromise the investigation itself, but a lot of what I've said is already public through my testimony to the January 6th committee hearing uh, before Congress uh, in uh in 2022. So a lot of the focus is on Antrim County. We know that a lot of the experiences that we had were uh, about how lies and threats transformed themselves and manifested themselves. I'm sorry, how lies around our elections transformed themselves into threats against us personally and, and how that impacted us. And not to mention the false slate of electors, which appears to be a very intentionally coordinated effort to lie to the federal government about who won an election. So casting a wide net, looking at all of those things, and uh, I continue to share all the evidence that we have of wrongdoing with all federal authorities as well as state. Was it your sense that they showed up with a particular focus uh, before they arrived there? Not necessarily. I mean, the focus has been clear in every conversation we've had with any law enforcement official, which is, you know, all the different ways in which there was a concerted effort to overturn the results of a presidential election, and to the extent that it was coordinated from state to state. Uh, certainly the false slate of electors is an example of that that's uh, at this point now uh, very well known. But again, a lot of the conversations, as it was with the January 6th committee and in other, other settings, have been focused on how this effort, this attempt to overturn the will of the people, was not went beyond that and led to violence. And of course, I experienced that outside my home in December of 2020, two days after Rudy Giuliani was in the state falsifying uh, statements about our election to uh, state lawmakers. And we saw that escalate to the tragedy at our Capitol on January 6th as well. So that violence that, that was a result of these lies, I think, must be part of any examination uh, and seeking of justice in this case. Michigan Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson, thank you very much for joining us again tonight. Always appreciate it. Likewise. Thanks for having me. Thank you. And coming up, you legislate 
one vote at a time, and today Senator Chris Van Hollen picked up one Republican vote in support of his bill to create a code of ethics for the United States Supreme Court. That's next. I happen to be one on the Republican side of the aisle that thinks the Supreme Court needs to have a code of ethics. I think most people in this country think that the Supreme Court the highest court in the land, um, those nine individuals actually has one. Uh, all of the lower courts do. We certainly do in our legislative branch and the executive branch. That happened today in the Senate Appropriations Committee, where the committee discussed Senator Chris Van Hollen's amendment to an appropriations bill to withhold $10 million in funding from the Supreme Court's budget until the Supreme Court adopts a code of ethics. That's an attempt to go at this issue through the Appropriations Committee, kind of a full court press by Democrats. But one Republican supporting the proposal would not be enough for the bill to clear a 60-vote threshold on the Senate floor with that amendment attached to it. It would be, in Senate terms, what they call a poison pill for the overall bill, which does have bipartisan support. I find it hard to understand how an amendment that says to the Supreme Court of the United States of America that you should have a code of ethics, just like all the other federal courts, becomes a, a poison pill. Uh, I guess it's a sign of where our politics has taken us. Joining us now is Democratic Senator Chris Van Hollen of Maryland. He's a member of the Senate Budget Committee, and he chairs the Senate Appropriations Subcommittee that oversees the Supreme Court's budget. Senator, thank you very much for joining us tonight. Uh, legislating, of course, is, uh, is a very patient and requires a lot of patience. I saw you pick up one vote today uh, with Senator Murkowski, uh, but this isn't the day where it's going to move. Uh, is the, the action now moving to the Senate Judiciary Committee? Well, that's right, Lawrence, and you got the political math uh, exactly right. Uh, I had hoped to attach uh, this rider uh, to the appropriations bill, withholding the $10 million until uh, the court did the right thing and finally adopted a, a code of ethics. Uh, but it was very clear that if we went down this road, that Republicans uh, were going to filibuster the entire appropriations uh, bill and not let that move forward. And while we heard that Senator Murkowski uh, supports uh, the idea in principle, uh, as you say, ultimately we need 60, which means we need uh, nine more Senate Republicans. So uh, I did withdraw the amendment so that we wouldn't um, crater the appropriations bill. But next week, uh, a week from today, in fact, uh, the Judiciary Committee, Senator Durbin has indicated that he's going to take up uh, a bill that Sheldon Whitehouse uh, has introduced that would require the Supreme Court to finally have its own code of ethics. Uh, you know, I, this is the kind of legislating uh, that I have to say I, I admire because uh, it's not about the win that day. It's about putting the pressure on from every possible angle you can find, including appropriations, which is always a, an extremely important angle uh, that, is, that is often ignored but can sometimes be very, very powerful uh, in order to uh, bring attention to and pressure on these kinds of issues. Well, that's exactly right, Lawrence, and uh, we're trying to 
bring pressure on the Supreme Court from every angle. Um, there have been some indications uh, that the Supreme Court is feeling the pressure that Justice Roberts recognizes uh, that this has become a self-inflicted wound on the Supreme Court and is leading to a great loss of public confidence uh, in the court. I mean, as Senator Murkowski herself said, who doesn't think the Supreme Court of the United States should apply the same kind of rules to itself uh, that it's applying to all the other federal courts, the district courts and the appellate courts? Uh, do they really think they're somehow above it all and so good that they don't need standards uh, to govern their own conduct? And it is kind of crazy that the highest court in the land has the lowest standards of all the federal courts. Uh, so I do think the pressure uh, is building. Um, but we're going to keep it up. Uh, we're going to keep it up because uh, apparently it's hard to shame the Supreme Court, but we're going to keep at it until they, they do the right thing. Senator Chris Van Hollen, working the issue one senator at a time. Thank you very much for joining us tonight. Really appreciate it. Good to be with you. Thanks, Lawrence. Thank you. Attorneys, you know, thank you very much, prosecution team, for helpfully pointing out, for example, a fair jury. Before the presidential election, Jack Smith says, our jury system relies on the court's authority to craft a thorough and effective jury selection process and on prospective jurors' ability and willingness to decide cases based on the evidence presented to them. The conditions that defendants argue will make it a challenge to select a jury will not appreciably change after the completion of the election. The last line of Jack Smith's filing says, For all of these reasons, the court should reject defendants' invitation to defer consideration of a trial date and should set jury selection to begin on December 11th, 2023. Leading off our discussion tonight, Andrew Weissman, former FBI general counsel and former chief of the criminal division in the Eastern District of New York. He's a professor of practice at NYU Law School. Also with us, Glenn Kirshner, former federal prosecutor. He is the host of the Justice Matters podcast. They are both MSNBC legal analysts. Uh, Andrew Weissman, uh, your reading of Jack Smith's uh, response on scheduling. Well, we anticipated that he was going to file a response uh, because so far he's really sort of run this crack team of making sure that his position is known to the court and that the court has uh, the benefit of his thinking. Um, it, I thought was a very strong brief. Uh, you know, the, the borderline frivolous line is in reference to something that's important. Uh, the uh, former president keeps on talking about the Presidential Records Act and keeps saying that's what governs this case. And that is what the government took direct aim at and said it is entirely irrelevant to this criminal case, both to the uh, retention of classified national defense information part of the case and to the obstruction case. Um, and so I thought it was really good that they just took aim at that what they basically said was frivolous, um, or it's, I think they were a little more polite and said borderline frivolous. Um, and then I think the other thing worth noting is it is really important for people to understand this is not 
a voluminous document case. You know what a voluminous document case is? Enron, where the words terabyte come up when you're dealing with huge amounts of electronic data. Um, it is true that this is not a sort of like a car crash. It's not something which is a very small case, but it just is not that complicated. Um, the biggest issue here is the classified documents, and I think it's good that the government conceded that will take some time, but their point is that this will be six months. There is ample time for people to go through that material because it's not that much. So there's a very strong brief. It'll be a real test of Judge Cannon as to what she does at this point, um, whether she really is going to be fair to the government uh, in their request for a firm trial date. Glenn Kirshner, as I said uh, on this program, when I read the Trump lawyer's uh, request uh, for the continuance, it made sense to me when they were talking about the massive nature of the discovery here, but they left out an awful lot of specifics about that that the government has now supplied for us. And of course, I didn't think it made sense that they should have an indefinite continuance, but certainly an argument for a continuance was in there in the amount of material. The government, Jack Smith says, as, I, as we just said in this document, that we have, in effect, given you defense lawyers a study guide. Uh, we've pointed out to you what the highlights are in this massive amount of material. But from the Trump lawyer perspective, how can they trust or rely on or use effectively a study guide that's supposed to save them time supplied to them by the prosecutors? You know, Lawrence, you just made the exact point that will be made by the defense attorneys. You know, thank you very much, prosecution team, for helpfully pointing out, for example, what portions of the surveillance video you believe are relevant to the case. That doesn't mean we're going to agree with your assessment. But, Lawrence, I love your characterization of this 10-page filing. You said Jack Smith hit back hard. I would agree with Andrew. This is a persuasive court pleading. It is a model of clarity, of brevity, of persuasion. It is only 10 pages, double-spaced. It's a quick, easy read. I would urge people to read it because it is clear. Jack Smith and his team don't mince words. They don't pull punches. And I, I was really kind of excited when I read it because it feels like a sign of the prosecution to come, um, you know, and I think that that they are going to continue to insist on a timely trial date. And in fact, on page one of this pleading, they highlight how the, the Trump defense team failed in really its most important endeavor when they filed their pleading on July 10th. They said, Judge, don't set a trial date. One of the first things Jack Smith pointed out is the Speedy Trial Act says the judge shall set a day certain for the trial to begin. So they really just sort of embarrass the, the Trump defense team's request, and they don't let up for the 10 pages. So I, I am encouraged that this is what we can expect from Jack Smith and his team. Yeah, uh, Edward Rice, but I, I agree with Glenn's characterization of it as exciting. Now, we may be... Uh, losing credibility with the audience here if we say that a legal filing like this is exciting to read. But it was for me because of what Glenn's talking about. You could feel the pace of it in the first two sentences. It, it just takes off like a rocket and, and, and just speeds right through there. And one of the things that that means is it does not take any detour into or notice of 
the political rhetoric used by the Trump lawyers in their filing that provoked this filing, particularly the sentence in their filing where the Trump lawyers say President Biden is prosecuting Donald Trump. They say that very specifically in their filing, uh, and Jack Smith decided to simply ignore uh, all of that political posturing and just go straight at what this case is about. Yeah, I thought that was, frankly, the right call. Um, I agree with you in the point that you've made in, in a prior show that that statement had no basis in fact. Uh, there, there isn't even a basis in fact to say that this was a case brought by the attorney general, let alone uh, the current president of the United States. There, this is a reason there, there is an appointment of a special counsel uh, in this case. I think it was smart, particularly with this judge, to play it by the book uh, and to set up facts and clear law. And I agree completely with Glenn that it was really smart to start with the language of the Speedy Trial Act and to remind the judge that it is the public that has a right to a speedy trial. Um, that is really key here. It is not something that the government um, can just choose, and it's not something that the defendant can choose. The defense very often would never like to never go to trial, of course. And it's the public's right by statute to see that people charged with a criminal case are tried speedily, obviously consistent with the due process rights of the defendant to prepare a case. Um, but again, this is going to be a real test of Judge Cannon to see how she handles this matter. Uh, Glenn, what did you see, if anything, in terms of indications of the evidence in the case? Anything indicating uh, what, where we might be going in terms of evidence that we didn't know about before this filing? There's the reference to uh, two devices of Walt Nauta's that they have, uh, they're in possession of. They haven't turned over the information from that. There's just a couple of references like that to certain specific pieces of evidence. I don't think we learned anything new factually that we didn't know before this pleading dropped. Um, but what I do think we can glean from it is this prosecution team is extremely organized and they're very forward leaning. You know, Lawrence, you pointed to the fact that they turned over something called Jenks material. These are prior statements of witnesses that by the rules don't even have to be given over until essentially the first day of trial. Although in practice, prosecutors will give Jenks material over significantly earlier. Um, Jack Smith represented that, listen, we're giving it all over. In fact, I think he said, we have given over all of the grand jury transcripts. And I have to tell you, that must have been a shock when Donald Trump got to see who testified about him and what they said in the grand jury. Because I can envision them, you know, having an audience with Donald Trump at Mar-a-Lago saying it's a witch hunt, boss. You've done nothing wrong. But I'll bet many of those witnesses said said some very different things under oath before a grand jury. But overall, these prosecutors are organized. They are forward-leaning, you know, disclosing more than they have to disclose earlier than they have to disclose it. That always puts lawyers in a very good light when they're in court and disputes come up. They can say, listen, we have been more than forthcoming, more than the rules require. So that will put them in a very good litigation posture in the court. 
uh, and Andrew Weissman, uh, the, the firm of Jack Smith has another huge case that they're running at exactly the same time when they're responding so quickly and so effectively uh, in this espionage case. And that is, of course, the in investigation of what Donald Trump was up to leading up to January 6th. Uh, we, we now have today a possible, a theoretical uh, prosecution memo written by a team of lawyers who did a similar prosecution memo uh, for the case Donald Trump is now a defendant in. The prosecution memo they wrote about that uh, turned out to be largely uh, the direction Jack Smith went. Uh, they released their uh, prosecution memo, and to be clear, this is not an official document. This is just lawyers with prosecutorial experience who know the kind of prosecution memos that are written in the Justice Department before the decision to prosecute. And they indicate uh, that they expect charges to be filed. They believe evidence exists that could get to a conviction of Donald Trump uh, on the on on what he was doing leading up to January 6th. What, what was your take of their memo? Sure. So this is, as you noted, a sample of 